Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Dear Father, you are holy. Scripture tells us that you are holy, holy, holy. And with that, because of our sin, we are not able to come before your presence except through the works and obedience of Christ that we're going to remember, not only through the message in this prayer, but also as we take communion. And we thank you for your grace and your goodness towards us. Father, we pray that many hearts this morning will be open to the gospel. I pray that many will come, not only in this service, but in the services to come, in in the city of Orange later today, in the the speaking of Luke, and in the Christmas on the corner. Father, for the churches in Orange, in Orange County, in the United States, and throughout the world, the hidden churches in China, and Korea, and Syria, and Iraq, may your Holy Spirit begin opening the hearts of people around the world. Let us remember that we're part of that fabric as your bride, as your church. And we thank you that you have called us, that you have chosen us, that you have redeemed us, and that even today you're sanctifying us, and that one day we'll be glorified and be made right fully in your presence. No evil, no sin, no suffering. But until that day, Father, we live in this world that is affected by sin. Our hearts still carry the residue of our desire many times in direct opposition to the new heart that you've given us. So we pray for a zealousness, a desire, an eagerness to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that we stand before a holy and almighty God. Give us a a healthy fear of who you are and, and of your judgment, but also to encourage each other with your grace that's so freely given. Lord, renew a commitment within this body of believers here at Orange Villa. Lord, that we would be committed to encouraging one another, to challenge one another, to provoke one another. Not only in love, but also to do good works, to live out our faith. To do the sanctification of a work that you're doing in our lives. To bear one another burdens. Father, there are many that are in need of healing today, whether in their health, whether it's in their emotion or mental health. Maybe it's in their financial or some relationships that need to be restored. But Father, let us come together and heal together. Give the comfort that you've given to us. Father, we pray for our missionaries this morning that we support. We pray for their health. Many are living in countries that many times may not have the greatest health care. They may not have the greatest opportunities to have physical difficulties and problems dealt with. Be with their finances. Lord, give them safety. May you give your favor to their ministries and to their work. And Lord, I pray that you would just come and join with us in a mighty way. Stir up our hearts. Strengthen us for this battle. We pray this in Christ's name. And God's people said once again, Amen. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Mark chapter 9 as we just continue, because all we have is Christ. Amen? That should be enough. And that's the challenge, that's the question, the encouragement that we've been given to each other through this gospel, Mark. For God commands us to give up everything. 
our dreams, our aspirations, our hope, our even our life, God says it is mine if you follow me. In our passage last week, the main theme was that true followers of Jesus must abandon all claims of their life. Let's say it again. Jesus commands that all true followers of Christ will abandon all claims on their life. I told you last week, the message unofficially was titled, How the Words of Jesus Ruined My Life. And I pray that Jesus has ruined your life in the fact of His words, in the fact that He takes our dreams, our aspirations, and He turns our world and our thinking upside down. That's what the Bible does. That's what it's doing today. That's what it did then. You see, this means that Jesus requires, as we saw last week, a personal response to his identity. Who do you say Jesus is? Jesus demands complete devotion as you and I profess Christ. And we looked at how many people have taken Jesus and the profession of Jesus just to be a simple assent to a prayer. Yes, Jesus, I know you are the Son of God and just come into my heart. But Jesus demands much more than just a simple prayer. For he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. This includes, as we saw last week, a self-renouncement of our claim to be on the throne and a denial of ourselves as the object of our admiration. And we looked at ways in which we still put ourselves up as the object of our admiration. It also includes taking up the cross and following Jesus Jesus is painting a word picture of a man who's condemned, forced to carry his own cross to his execution. It's a call to join Jesus in his humiliation, to humble ourselves before a living God, to carry the reproach of following Christ and being a Christ follower. Jesus says, it's not that the world hates you, it's that they hate me. So many times when we're taking stands that are countercultural, that are different than the world, and we, we sense a hate, we feel a hate coming from them, it's not hate for us, but it's hate for Christ. It's hate for the very Savior. In doing so, when we do so, Jesus says He rewards the devoted followers while rejecting those who reject Him. For if we're bold and we give our lives to Him, He claims us in the end. But if we are ashamed of Him, He rejects us in the end. We ended last week with Jesus' demands with a promised preview of that wonderful day when He will be vindicated as the true Messiah. The transfiguration that we're about to read about anticipates and guarantees the parosa, the coming of Christ. It points to the complete coming reality of Christ's complete victory. The unveiling today, though, continues in our passage as Mark records the transfiguration of Jesus with another vocal testimony of God the Father. Mark now gives us a time reference from the time of Peter's confession to Christ revealing that the Messiah must suffer and that any who would follow him must be as well. As we come to this point in Mark, it is six days later and Jesus now is moving towards Jerusalem. He's leaving Galilee, his Galilean ministry, and he's setting his face and his time and his date with the crucifixion. Join with me in Mark chapter 9. Let's read together. I'll read out loud, you silently, verses 2 through 8. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John. And he led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. 
there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice coming out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. Father, what a great supernatural revealing. What a verse in many ways is such a mystery to us as it probably was to the disciples. So just I pray, give us a spiritual understanding into your word this morning. Let your spirit work. Let us respond to your work and your word. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. The heavenly glory presented here in verses 2 through 8 in chapter 9 is in direct contrast to the humiliation that we find in chapter 8, verse 31 of several weeks ago, where Jesus revealed that the Son of Man must suffer many things. Remember that verse? And be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. Theologian Walter Wessel writes that the transfiguration is a revelation of the glory of the Son of God. It's a glory now hidden to be manifested completely and openly at the end of the age when the Son of Man will come in the glory of His Father to render judgment on the world. So it's, it's a picture of what's to come. This passage, I believe, serves as a confidence builder, an encouragement and a vindication to every believer that professes Jesus as Lord and abandons everything to follow Him. For following Jesus is worth the cost. And that's what I want to share again this morning, is Jesus is worth the cost. And we get a picture of that this morning. I'm indebted to theologian R.T. France for the points I'm about to give you that, that follow our framework this morning. As he notes in this passage, it makes three points. The first point as we look at this is that the visible alteration of Jesus demonstrates that he is more than just a mere teacher. Remember, Jesus was asking people, who do people say that I am? And several weeks ago, we looked at what people today say Jesus is, and many will say that he's a rabbi, he's a teacher. Peter himself says, rabbi, teacher. Jesus is more than just a teacher, and this visible alteration of Jesus is going to demonstrate that he's much, much more than that. Again, looking for solitude, looking for prayer and encouragement, Jesus finally is able to get away with his disciples. This started way back when. Jesus is finally finding some time to get away. And Mark notes that Jesus brings three of them, Peter, James, and John, up to a mountaintop with him. The gospel has pointed out that the three, these three disciples get singled out for special revelation many times. In Mark 5, we see that it was those three that traveled with Jesus to Jairus' house to heal his daughter. Out of the twelve, Jesus had a special relationship with these three men. We don't know exactly what is special about them, but we will see that these men become great pillars of the faith and of the church later on. I say this, this was even meant to give encouragement to all the disciples because of the way Mark describes this event. Look at the verbs used in this passage. Jesus took them. He led them. He appeared before them. And all these things, it's about them. He's bringing them. He's including them in. He's wanting them to see something special, to be a witness. He's wanting to encourage them to lift them up. In verse 7, we'll see that God actually, the God the Father actually will speak to them. 
Jesus is finally revealing himself, his ministry, and his purpose in coming. It involves suffering and rejection and betrayal. As you may recall from this series, the desire for the Messiah's appearance has reached a fever pitch. Even after the feeding of 5,000, they wanted to take Jesus and make him king. That long-expected messianic age is coming, as we just sung about just a little bit ago. It has finally arrived, and the Messiah is now telling them, not only will he be rejected and die, but any who follow the Messiah must also suffer and die. These are men that are in need of encouragement. These are men that are in need of some confidence builder. Because now, once again, Jesus is ruining everything that they had. Their worldview is being tipped upside down. With that kind of news, would not you and I all need some type of encouragement? It's someone to come to say everything that you hoped and desired for is now not true or will be lost. In asking who people thought he was, some commented that Jesus was a prophet, a healer, a teacher. But Jesus is so much more than that. He is the Christ. The supernatural revealing on this mountain is demonstrated as Jesus has changed right before their eyes. Mark writes that Jesus was transfigured before them. That's kind of an interesting word. You and I don't use it very often. The Greek word is used for here for transfigured is a word that we get our word metamorphosis, meaning to change into another form, from one form into another. John MacArthur writes that in some inexplicable way in which we are not giving full details, Jesus manifested some of his divine glory that is his, that belongs to him. In Luke chapter 9, 29, the good doctor writes that Jesus was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. For you and I, we might think back to Moses, who when he was, went to the mountain, he took 70 men with him, but then took three men up with him. And then Moses himself went alone. And we see that when he was given the tablets, he met with God. And remember, it said that his face was changed to pure white. From that day on, for 40 years, Moses had to walk around with a veil because the people could not look on his face. He would get up and talk to him. He had to put the veil on. When he walked among them, he had to put the veil on. It was only when he was with God he'd take it off. It changed him. There was something different. In the same way, we're seeing something that is so magnificent that even the Gospels are not able to share exactly all that happened other than it gets a preview of who Jesus truly is. The divining light or the divine glory emanated from Jesus made even his clothing radiate brilliant white light. Light is often associated in Scripture with God's visible presence. In Scripture, many times, God appeared in lights and in clouds and in fire with intense glory. Mark makes a point to describe the clothes as being so white that no earthly cleaner could accomplish this. There was something miraculous coming on as the visible alteration of Jesus demonstrates that He's more than just a mere teacher. It's a sign of encouragement that this is a man is much more. This man who is demanding so much of you is much more than just a man. Number two, 
not only is his visible alteration demonstrating something, but also his association with Elijah and Moses. Again, something mysterious. This is just a mysterious passage. It demonstrates his Masonic role. There's something special going on with Moses and Elijah. Some believe that the Old Testament heroes of the faith, Moses and Elijah, are chosen here to represent the law and the prophets. Moses for the law and Elijah for the prophets. Or that they were chosen due to the fact that their mysterious appearance echoes their mysterious exit from the world. In Deuteronomy, we find that Moses goes to die, and it says that no one knows where he is buried, for he went up to die, and it says that God himself buried him. And then we find in Scripture that Micah and Satan are debating or fighting, disputing over the body of Moses. His disappearance is just a mystery. We do not know where he is. We don't know where his tomb is. In 2 Kings, we all know Elijah, where he was translated up to heaven in a whirlwind of, uh, into heaven with the horses and chariots of fire. Elijah was also expected during the Messianic age from Malachi 4, 5. We'll look a little more at this next week, where God promises, I will send you Elijah and the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. God had also promised in Deuteronomy that he would send another prophet like Moses in that great day. So it's no surprise that it's Moses and Elijah. They were great men. And in some way, it's not told to us once again, that these disciples recognized Moses and Elijah. They'd never seen pictures. I don't think there was pictures. There was no selfies and things of that nature. Could you imagine now? Maybe we need to make a comic book of the Bible with selfies. The Bible with selfies. You know, Moses doing the, the staff and the, and the things. All those types of things. I don't know what that has to do with him. But I just also imagine that. Sometimes I think funny things in my head. Though they're not as funny once I say them. I, do you guys have that problem too? That's what my wife and my family always tells me. But Moses and Elijah showing here is not unusual. They were expected in that fever pitch. People were expecting. So it would not be surprising, but yet they knew them. And their mysterious appearing is as mysterious as their disappearance was on their time here on earth. Now, though Mark does not tell us what they were talking about, Jesus, Moses, and Elijah were in some type of discussion. Disciples are sitting there. Jesus is turning uh, bright. There's a light, and all of a sudden, Moses and Elijah appear. Again, we can go to Luke chapter 9. And they tell us that Moses and Elijah spoke of Jesus' departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So in reality, what they're talking about is Jesus' upcoming death and resurrection. It's confirming what Jesus had revealed to his disciples, that he must suffer and die. So you can almost imagine the scene. Here you up on the mountaintop. The one that you believed was Messiah, the one you've been looking for for years. Here he is. He's finally here. And he's going to turn the world upside down by driving out the Romans, driving out the Greeks. He's going to restore the temple. He's going to restore the throne to David. And Israel once again will have its kingdom. Only to find that man that you have been serving with, that man that you've been traveling with, the man that you left your business and your family and friends with and taught with is now telling you that he must be rejected, that he will be betrayed by one of you, and that he will suffer and that he will die. And not only that, he looks at them and he says, you too must also suffer and die. You can imagine the confusion, the hurt, the world turned upside down. 
And Jesus takes some time and takes them up there and he introduces them to two great heroes of the faith who then begin speaking to Jesus. And what's their conversation? The very thing that Jesus told them, confirming to them, Listen, we know that this is what it is. This is the predetermined plan. This is what's going to happen. You can imagine them as they're listening on to this, this cosmic conversation that they maybe were encouraged. They were thinking, what is going on? Moses and Elijah, they understand. Why aren't they trying to tell Jesus that this is not the way? But no, they're confirming what Jesus had been saying. Peter, as usual, he has foot and a mouth disease. He responds impulsively by asking if he should build some tents, earthly shelters for some heavenly beings. That's he's thinking. He's thinking, well, this must be it. Let me build some, build some tents for them. He's a loss for words due to his fear. Mark tells us why. He doesn't know really what to say. And like you and I, many times, you know, we just say something stupid. That's really what Peter's doing. He's not fully grasping the situation. He's just, he's got to say something. They're not grasping what they're witnessing. Disciples would have been aware of these passages in Scripture about the Messiah. And though they probably didn't put it all together right then of what was going on in that mountain, at the moment they would after the resurrection and the outpouring of the Spirit at the day of Pentecost. Peter would not always be at a loss for words, but yet we see what was going on here. They're introduced to two great heroes of the faith. His association with Elijah and Moses demonstrates his messianic role. It confirms what Jesus has been saying. It had to have been an encouraging word to them. Even though they could not fully grasp all what was going on, they couldn't fully grasp what was the message, they had to be brought back later. And then thirdly, not only does the visible alteration of Jesus demonstrate that he's more than just a mere teacher, and not only are they brought in Elijah and Moses and confirmed what Jesus has been saying, but there's a voice from heaven that declares Jesus' identity as the Son of God. Once again, the Father speaks into history, and he announces that Jesus is his Son. Early in Mark, after Jesus' baptism, the Father proclaimed, You are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Though Jesus will be rejected by his own people, and though he will be killed by the Romans, he is accepted and loved. Father, we come before you this morning just to sing your praise and joy to the world, for Lord, you have come. And I thank you for just joining us this morning as we celebrate your presence, expressing our love to you for what you've done in our lives. We invite you to join with us this morning that you may be glorified in all that comes together this morning. Praise in Christ's name. Amen. Take your Bibles and turn, if you would, to Mark chapter 9 as we talk about the second coming of Elijah. The unveiling is continued in our passage last week as Mark recorded the transfiguration of Jesus with another vocal testimony of God the Father declaring that Jesus is His Son. That passage that we looked at last week, the Transfiguration, served as a confidence builder, an encouragement and a vindication to every believer that professes that Jesus is Lord and abandons everything to follow Him and following the cross, for following Him is worth the cost. As a source of encouragement, the visible alteration of Jesus demonstrates that he's more than just a mere teacher. His interaction with Elijah and Moses shows that he has an association with the Messiah, with a messianic role. And then again, the voice from heaven declares his identity as the Son of God. 
This Jesus, as we looked at last week, will once again come in all power, glory, and vindication again. The scripture also tells us and gives us encouragement that as Jesus was once transformed there at the transfiguration and also at the day when he was risen, that we too will be transformed. In today's passage, as we continue with that story, we're going to read the conclusion of the transfiguration as Jesus and his disciples head down the mountain. The disciples are still confused. They're not sure of what all they saw or the significance of what they saw. Mark records the following conversation in verses 9 through 13. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as is written of him. Father, we thank you for this revelation. We thank you for this gospel. We thank you that Mark has recorded for us the events of the transfiguration. And so with that, let us take time now to just read your word, to pray over it, to understand it. And Father, I pray that you give us wisdom, let your Holy Spirit have free reign. And Father, may we respond to what you've called us to do through the Spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to give you again some observation as we look just at that short passage. The first thing I want to point out is that Jesus commits the disciples to silence once again until after his resurrection. Look at that. He says, tell no one what you have seen. Do not tell anyone that I was on the mountain and Elijah and Moses came and I was transfigured, I was transformed in the, in the things that we were talking about. Keep that silent until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. Jesus commands them to be silent, to wait until after the resurrection of Christ to share what has happened on that mountaintop. Now, this was probably a relief, I think, since Mark points out the disciples were not even sure what Jesus meant when he talked about the rising of the dead. They were confused about what they saw about the transfiguration. They weren't really sure what was going on. So it might have been a point of relief. I think I can keep this to myself. I'm not sure exactly if I can even understand what I uh, saw, if I can even trust. I could almost imagine what was going on in their minds as they were walking down that mountaintop when he said the Son of Man had risen. Don't say anything until the Son of Man has risen. I can imagine them saying, wait, did you say resurrection? Uh, what does that mean? What are you talking about? You see, we have to make sure, remember that, is that they were not sure what Jesus is talking about. They knew about the general resurrection written about in the Old Testament. In Daniel chapter 12, if you're quick enough, you can turn there. It says, at that time shall Michael, the archangel, the great prince who is charged of a people, and there shall be a time of trouble, speaking about the end troubles, such as never been seen since the nation until that time. But he goes on to say, but at that time your people, speaking about the Jews, the Israels, shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So they had an idea about a general resurrection. In Isaiah 26, also the prophet writes, Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. 
For your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. So we have to remember that at this time, the Jews did not have a fully systemized teaching or belief about life after death. For them, they had a general belief that after the Messiah would come, and after he had restored Israel to its rightful place, that those Israelites, those Jews who had passed from that time on, would then be resurrected. But what does the Son of Man have to do with that? What are we saying that the Messiah himself must be resurrected? To their mind, to their thinking, to their teaching, the resurrection happens after. What are you saying about the Son of Man, the Anointed One, being resurrection? What does that have to do with him? What does that have to do with that? Jesus seems to be speaking about something much more, something greater. Now, he had alluded to this a little bit earlier when he asked, who do you say that I am? And Peter gives that great confession, and then he begins to teach him that the Son of Man must be betrayed and rejected and suffer and die and rise again. So once again, he's giving them a glimpse. In John chapter 11, verse 24, Martha said to Jesus concerning her brother Lazarus who had died. He says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus informs her that I am the resurrection and the life. And whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. At this time, though, Jesus has not fully revealed this wonderful truth that, that all those that are God's children will one day be resurrected. Here, they're still just getting a glimpse. So again, they're probably, I'll be silent about I'm not quite sure what's going on. We see that as we go on, as the disciples ask about the teaching and the return of Elijah. For they say, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? At first, they're, saying, they're questioning themselves, what is rising from this dead must mean? But yet, when they come to Jesus, they ask, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Interesting, they did not ask him for clarification about the resurrection. I think they were just ready just to leave that on. That's one of those things that, you know what, I don't think I get it. Let's just go on. But instead, they asked about Elijah and why it was taught that he must return. Remember, for their mindset, everything was about the restoration of Israel. For then the Messiah was one who would come and restore Israel to its rightful place. That was their mindset. God had promised in Malachi chapter 3, when he said, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Elijah is prophesied in the Old Testament as coming before the Messiah and the great day of judgment. In Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, God says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of of the Lord comes. The rabbi teaching of that day included the hope and expectation of Elijah's return at Passover. To this day, the Jews provide an empty cup and an open door at the Passover for Elijah. So that's their expectation is that Elijah will come and prepare the way for the Messiah and then they will restore all things. Well, Jesus affirms then what they've learned but then he explains it fuller as we go on. For he says, Elijah does come first to restore all things. But he goes on and gives them something a little bit more. And he gives it in a form of a question when he says, And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things 
and be treated with contempt. Jesus is affirming that their teaching about Elijah, the second coming of Elijah, was correct. The reason Elijah must come is for restoration. Now this would have been familiar to them, as we've already pointed out, that they believed the Messiah would come to restore Israel. That's what they're looking for. Hence why what Jesus is doing and what Jesus is saying is starting to become confusing to them. However, Jesus, as we saw, has put a wrench into their thinking. And that once again, he states the Messiah must suffer. The Messiah must die. And then he says the Messiah must be resurrected. In fact, Jesus, though, tells them that all of that was written in Scripture. But what we recognize today is that they were missing that point. They could not understand what Jesus... For you and I, we have the positive hindsight. For them, they did not see it. The idea of a suffering Messiah is found in several passages in Scripture. And so now we're going to take a Bible out. For those of you who have been practicing your sword drills, turn to the book of Psalms, if you would. I want to go ahead and look at several passages together. If you have your Bibles, turn to Psalms 22. Psalms 22, we start to see how for years the Scriptures had written about it. And this is Psalms 22, is known now as also was known then as a psalm that would be speaking of the Messiah, of the Anointed One. In verse 6 of Psalms 22, it says, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He goes on to say in verse 14, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Look at verse 16. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all of my bones. They stare and gloat over me. And then verse 18, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. For you and I, it's easy for us now to see Jesus and how he fulfills that. In those days, it was still blurry. They were like trees walking. They could not see clearly. Turn, if you would, and then Psalm 69, just several chapters more further. We see that it continues, Psalm 69. Looking at verse 20, he says, Reproaches have broken my heart, so that I am despair. I look for pity, but there was none, and for my comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. And then if you would turn to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 53, we read this very clearly, usually around this time during Christmas. We read it during the resurrection, Easter. Again, we see that it's been written from time past that the Messiah, the anointed one, must be a suffering Messiah. Isaiah 53, look at verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised. And what does it say? And we esteemed him not. Verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs, and he's carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Amen? Amen. 
Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. And like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Once again, you and I, in hindsight, read Christ's story, and we understand it. Verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. See, what they did not recognize is they were looking for Elijah. They had an expectation that the Messiah would come. But as we said several weeks away, their life and their dreams and their aspirations have been turned upside down. For they were looking for the restoration. Even in Acts it says, when will you restore all things back to Israel? And Jesus says, it's not for you to know. See, they're looking for an earthly, they're looking for a political, an ethnic, a national restoration that comes in power and glory and victory. But really what Jesus is teaching them through this transfiguration and through Elijah is that first must come suffering and death. And then after that, the resurrection. And only then will the restoration begin and be fully done. Once again, you and I must realize that salvation comes through suffering. And we've looked at that. For you and I, our salvation comes from the suffering Christ. Our salvation comes for those who endure and overcome. To those who count the cost, who pick up their cross and follow Christ. It's not just a simple prayer. It's just not repeating some words after someone else. It means that there's the lordship of Christ in which we follow him fully. And it will cause us to suffer, to expect it, to embrace it, he calls. You're still in Isaiah, I hope. Look at chapter 53, verse 11. For he goes on and he brings it all together. Salvation comes through suffering. Look at this, verse 11. For out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many, and he makes intercession for the transgressors. See, Christ is having to expand it fuller. Yes, Elijah will come, and he'll come and begin the restoration, but the suffering must come first. Death must come first, then resurrection. There's a hope there. Do not let your world be demolished. And as you and I know from reading the Scripture for so many years, is that there will come a day when their hopes are crushed. I mean, when Christ is betrayed by Judas, and when he's given up to the Romans. He's beaten and put on the cross. And in those three days that they wait in mourning, Christ comes, but until that day their hope is gone. The fourth thing I would like to share with the observation is not only does salvation come through suffering, but Jesus does affirm to them and tells them that Elijah has come through the ministry of John the Baptist, going back to Mark, Chapter 9, he says, But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as written of him. As Randy had read earlier in our scripture reading in Luke, the angel promises Zechariah, the priest, 
that his son John, we will come to know him as John the Baptist, will be great before the Lord and will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedience to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So Elijah's goal was to restore all things. John the Baptist is coming in that power to prepare the hearts for the Messiah's coming. The angel is not saying that John the Baptist is Elijah, that he's not Elijah reincarnated, but that he will have the same spirit and the same power as Elijah. In many respects, Elijah is the foreshadow or the type of John the Baptist and his ministry. They had many things in common. Elijah himself, as you might remember from Kings, was confronted and was rejected and suffered under Ahab and Jezebel, the king and queen. His time of ministry was marked with famine, extreme idol worship, and the suffering and the death of the followers of God. Ahab was manipulated by his wife Jezebel to kill and destroy Elijah at any cost. And she might have succeeded with not the miraculous intervention of God the Father who translates him up in a fiery chariot and brings him home. In the same way, John also confronted a king and a queen. And he was rejected and suffered under them. In this instance, the queen was successful in her manipulation of her husband to kill the prophet of God. John the Baptist, just as the prophets of old, boldly proclaimed the truth and called Herod on the carpet, so to speak. He did not allow Herod's position to derail him from preaching the truth. John the Baptist paid the ultimate price for his obedience and dedication to the word of God as he is beheaded at the whim of a young girl. Jesus himself testifies that John was Elijah. In Matthew chapter 11, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus tells his disciples, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. He was the last prophet. And he goes, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears, let him hear. Again, in chapter 17 of that gospel, he says, But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. For Jesus tells them that Elijah has come through the ministry of John the Baptist. You see, John had fulfilled the promise of God and the expectation of the return of Elijah. From Elijah to John the Baptist to Jesus, rejection and suffering awaits those who are obedient to God. It has happened time in and time again. And it should be no surprising to you and I that when we are obedient to God, when we speak the truth in love, that we too will suffer the same type of rejection and same type of suffering. The question I might ask from this scripture is if John is Elijah, who came to prepare the way for the restoration, why must the Messiah also suffer? Why must he suffer? Well, take your Bibles if you would and turn to Acts chapter 3. For that's the question. If he is Elijah, if he's come to restore all things, if he's come to prepare the way, John is now dead. Why is it that the Messiah must suffer? Why can't the Messiah, again, just come in? 
But again, we recognize that salvation comes through suffering. Restoration will come through that. In Acts chapter 3, look at verse 18. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that as Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, the disciples says the apostles. Verse 20, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses says, the Lord God will rise up from you, a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. God the Father echoing those words when he says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm pleased. Listen to him from last week. Why is it that the Messiah must suffer? For it's the forgiveness of sins. Though John the Baptist has put into motion the restoration that's prophesied, it is not finished. At this time, Christ came not to restore Israel. It was not to kick out the Romans. It was not to have Jews become, again, restored to their land and bring them back from the diaspora. It's not a time of victory for them in that regard, but to restore us back to God. That's what was not understood from Scripture that's what Zechariah prophesied when John would come, that he would prepare people's hearts and ready for them for Christ to come. But to restore us back to God, to turn back that our sins may be blotted out, the scripture says in Acts. That is why Jesus' face is set towards Jerusalem in our passage today. It's why he's embracing suffering. He's embracing the rejection. He's embracing the betrayal. He's embracing the death. He's embracing the cross. The Bible tells us in Hebrews that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And that's what you and I have to understand, is that salvation will come through suffering. So the disciples are saying, but wait a second, we're waiting for the restoration. That must come. Where is Elijah? We are saying that you're the Christ, but we must have missed him. Jesus is saying, if you have ears, let you hear, and eyes that you may see, that John the Baptist is the one who came to prepare the hearts. And what we need to recognize, the spiritual truth, if you're taking notes, if you want to take something home, is not only does salvation come through suffering, but restoration comes through repentance. As we go back, it says here in Luke, it says he will be great and he will turn the hearts of many children of Israel to the Lord their God, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedience to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. To receive Jesus now, repentance must be in place. For without repentance, there is no restoration. We must come and realize who God is. We must come and realize that who we are. And that we are an unholy people, a people who are rebellious. Paul tells us in Ephesians that we're disobedient to God. That we're enemies of God. And many people are talking today about restoration. They're wanting to see the goodwill towards man. Where is that happening? But restoration does not happen unless there's a repentive heart. I don't think it's any surprising that when you look at the, the ministries of Elijah, the ministry of John the Baptist and the ministry of Jesus, 
that they all preach the same message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We may not see those words of Elijah himself, but in the same case, he's calling all of Israel, Ahab and Jezebel, repent, repent, repent. From Elijah to John the Baptist to Jesus and to the disciples themselves, the call has always been the same to every generation, repent. And for you and I, even during this Christmas season, the one thing, the one call that you and I must have to people is to repent. For there is no hope of any restoration. There's no hope of any reconciliation until a heart repents. To prepare their hearts for the coming of the Messiah. You and I must be doing the same thing. For Christ is coming again, is he not? This time in victory and in power. The Bible tells us that he will come not to judge, not to save any longer. He will come to finish what he started. No longer will he be a helpless babe. But he gives us a picture of a warrior king coming to claim what is his. And for those hearts that have not been prepared, they will find themselves lost. And let me tell you the most wonderful gift that you could receive this season is that of repentance. And I say that because repentance is a gift from God. Repentance is not something that you and I can conjure up. Scripture tells us that there is a grief, a worldly grief, that actually leads to death. That's the worldly grief in which we're sorry that we got caught. We're sorry that we're paying the consequences of our actions. It's that worldly grief that says, oh, I wish I don't want to do this, but oh, you wind up doing it again. Repentance, though, is a gift from God in which it's a turning. Scripture says, pray that you may get the gift of repentance that leads to life everlasting. For you and I, the greatest gift that we can call down from heaven for our loved ones is, Lord, give our friends and our families a repentive heart. Prepare their hearts. Make it ready for the coming of Christ. Repentance is a gift from God in which we turn from trusting in our good works to trust that God is satisfied with the works of Jesus on our behalf. In Christ, our penalty of death is paid and we are given the righteousness of God. Until we suffer and repent, we will never have salvation and restoration. We need to prepare our hearts. Scripture tells us that Christ is coming again. And that you and I must prepare for his coming by calling others to repentance. In many churches, in many pulpits, you will never hear that. They say the day of calling for repentance is gone. There's not a call, but yet it is. Prepare your hearts. At that second coming, he will restore all things as scripture promises in Colossians. He says, for in him, speaking of Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood. Elijah has come through the ministry of John the Baptist, calling others to repent, preparing them that they may be in order to receive Jesus as Messiah. There are some who did, and there are many who did not. But that same call comes to us throughout the ages, through the blood of the martyrs and through the obedience of his children, is we too must repent. For if we repent, 
we will find restoration. So let me ask you this morning, would you come and embrace not only the suffering of the cross, but you would also embrace a heart of repentance in which you're turning from your glory and from your works and trusting in the works of Christ. For Christ must suffer and we must repent in that same way. I would ask for every head bowed and every eye closed for you to pause, to consider, to pray, and to respond. What is God calling you to this morning? Have you come to the place where you've repented from your sin? Have you repented from trying to work your way to heaven? Have you repented from the place of thinking that you're good enough on your own to go to heaven? It shows itself in so many ways. The Bible tells us there's no restoration until we repent. If you haven't done that, I would call you to it. Would you turn and trust in the works of Christ, recognizing there's nothing that you could do to make yourself right with God? It's only through the suffering of Christ and for what he's accomplished for us that we can ever have restoration. Would you call on the one? Would you pick up your cross? And would you follow him? Father, you are good. And Father, I pray and thank you for this gift of repentance that you have given to so many of us. That you have done the work of preparing our hearts through the work of the Spirit and through the work of your Word. That we may be ready to receive you. And we look forward to that glorious hope of your return when the restoration will finally be completed. That's our hope. That's our motivation. That's our desire. And Father, now I pray that we would be faithful in preaching that same message of repentance. Father, that we're calling others to come and follow you. And I pray that you would grant them that gift freely. We thank you for that. In your name we pray. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.